You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. Father, thank you so much for our time together tonight. Lord, I thank you for all of these wonderful folks that have joined us on our Bible study tonight. And Father, we're so grateful for who you are, that you love us and you care for us the way that you do. Father, we're so grateful for the Lord Jesus and the price that he paid and all that he accomplished for us. Thank you that in him we are redeemed, we're healed, we're blessed. And Father, we just thank you for that. Lord, we praise you tonight for the written word of God. And we uh, approach your word with reverence and with honor, Father, believing to receive from you. And we give you permission to speak to our hearts, to teach us, and to bring revelation and insight. And Father, we thank you for it. We love you with all of our hearts, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me to John, the 21st chapter. John, the 21st chapter, and we're going to begin there. We're uh, launching into a new series. You know, as I pray, let me kind of tell you what my process is. When I know that um, we're concluding a, a series that we've been on or a subject that we've been on, and uh and, and I began to pray and ask the Lord what direction that he wants me to go in. And, and, uh, you know, I just keep doing that. I, I, uh, and of course, spend time praying in the spirit and so forth. And, and, um, a lot of times I will just receive inspiration as far as, uh, a direction to go in a subject that, that we go in. And so I say all that to say what we're going to launch into tonight is a subject that I taught on during the pandemic in uh, in the middle, I think the first quarter of 2020, not long after everything had, had shut down and so forth. And, uh, and uh, I just, you know, really felt in my heart that uh, the Lord wanted us to go back and cover these things again. And that is talking about the miracles of Jesus and looking at that and um, studying the, the miracles, the things that happened in Jesus' ministry, not just the healings, but uh, a lot of the miracles. I mean, and, and uh, there's so many, so many there. And so, and the reason I say all that is, is I have gotten before, it's been a long time, but I, I've gotten before some comments online where, and I had one person that, um, where I had taught on something uh again, that I had taught on earlier and they were complaining, why, you know, why was I going back and teaching the same thing? And I was like, well, you know, the bottom line is because we don't get it. <laughs> and so, and other than that, the, the Lord, the, the, the Holy ghost directs us. And so anyway, I just thought that was funny, but so let's look at John, the 21st chapter, and we're going to look at the 25th verse. That's the very last verse of the book of John, the gospel of John. And uh, John summarizes everything that, you know, he had recorded about the ministry of Jesus. 
And he said something very profound. He said, and I'm reading from the New King James Version, he said, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so John is telling us that the Lord did more than, than what is recorded in the four gospels. Um, you know, to use his phraseology, uh, if it, if everything was recorded that Jesus said and did, uh, we, you know, you wouldn't have a room big enough to hold all the volumes. And so, you know, which is hard for us to wrap our brain around a ministry that was only three and a half years in existence before the Lord went to the cross, that all that could be accomplished. But, but apparently it's so, because that's why John recorded it. So, we're going to launch into this, talk about this. I'm going to lay some foundation tonight, and then we'll begin to talk about some of the details of the, the actual miracles themselves. Now, for the sake of time, make a note of this verse, Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, scripture I've referred to a lot. And it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So first thing I want to note, and this may seem simple, but the truth of the matter is, according to this verse, the miracles that Jesus did were good. You know, a lot of times God gets a bad rap, uh, you know, with things that, that people accuse him of doing. But everything that, that we see in the ministry of Jesus, the Bible itself calls them good. So everything that Jesus did, all of the miracles, everything that he uh, performed were good, okay? And so we're going to talk about all of those things. And so let me give you some verses because the miracle-working God now, we're going to focus on the ministry of Jesus, obviously, but um, let's talk about for just a second the miracles that happened in the Old Testament, and they are numerous as well. I mean, we could start, you know, in the book of Genesis and, and God's encounter with Abraham all the way through. And so let me give you some verses that just talk about uh, the Lord and his miraculous working power. I'm going to give you the reference, and you can look it up in the translation that you have there, but I'm going to mention a couple of other translations. Psalm 77 and verse 14. Psalm 77 and verse 14. In the Living Bible, the psalmist said this, You are the God of miracles and wonders, and you still demonstrate your awesome power. You are the God of miracles and wonders, and you still demonstrate your awesome power. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, the word that's translated wonders, W-O-N-D-E-R-S, is the same word for miracle. So anytime <clears throat> that you see a reference to the wonders of God in the Old Testament, that's a, that's a reference to the miraculous power of God. Job chapter 5 and verse 9 in the New Living Translation. Job 5 and verse 9 says, He, God, does great things too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. Okay, so he performs 
countless miracles. And then lastly, in Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, Jeremiah 32 and verse 27, and this will be a good verse for all of us to remember. And, and the, the Lord said to Jeremiah, he said, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind is anything too hard for me. And of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is an emphatic no, nothing is too hard for God. And it would do us good to remember that and to remember that in our lives, no matter how big the situation we may be facing might be, nothing is too hard for our God. So there's no need that's too great that he can't meet. There's no sickness too great that he can't heal. There is nothing that we face that is greater than what our God can do. Now, again, in laying the foundation for this, let's talk about some things about God that you need to understand if you don't already. And uh, so if you want to just turn in your Bibles with me to John, the second chapter, and I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. So if you want to be turning there, let me give you some things there that you need to understand if you're going to understand the miracle working power of God. Okay. If you're going to understand God's miracle working power, there's some things that we have to understand. Number one, that God is a spirit. God is a spirit. John chapter four and verse 24 says, Jesus himself talking about the father said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit being. He is not of this natural world, although he created the natural world. And that brings to bear something else I, I probably ought to point out. And that is this, that the natural world came out of the spirit realm where God lives. The the realm in which God lives is the spiritual realm. So natural things were created out of spiritual things. And that just keep that in the back of your mind. Okay. And although that God is very real, he is not a physical being. Now the Lord Jesus is a man because he took upon himself a flesh body like we all have, but God himself is a spirit. He does not have a flesh body in the sense that you and I do, Um, but he is all powerful and everything that we see in this natural world came out of him and out of that realm in which he lives. Okay. So God created this natural physical world out of the world in which he lives called the spirit world. Now, how did he do that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse three, just make a note of that verse, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse three, the scripture says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible or seen in the natural realm. Okay, so when God wanted to create something, he used the power of his word. He spoke his word, and uh, of course, that's a whole 
another bunch of lessons in and of itself. But the thing that I want you to see is, is that God who is spirit created natural out of his spoken word. So everything we see in this natural world as as Hebrews 11, 3, the things which uh, are visible to our natural eye were made by things which are invisible to our natural eye, okay? Now, if you make a note of this, if you limit the scope of your understanding to the natural realm only, you're not going to be able to understand God and the realm in which he lives. Okay, let me say that again. If you limit your scope of understanding to the natural realm only, which most people do, you will never really begin to understand God or the realm in which he lives. So that being said, what we're going to have to do as believers and followers of Jesus is open our understanding to believe and perceive and understand that there is a realm, a world, if you will, that is beyond what we can see in this natural world. Okay, and, and, and you know, it would probably surprise you at the number of Christians that really don't understand that concept right there. And that you have to open your heart to believe that there is something beyond what we can see with this natural, uh, with our natural senses. Okay. First Corinthians chapter two and verse 14, first Corinthians two 14 says this, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I am not, <laughs> I am not uh, implying that you get weird and spooky, but what I am saying to us is that we have to open our understanding to believe that there, there is a realm where God lives that is bigger and greater and more powerful than this natural world in which you and I function. Now, the good news is this. You, as a Christian, as a born-again believer, are born out of that realm, not the natural realm. And I'm talking about spiritually speaking. Okay, now, of course, your natural physical body is in this natural realm. But spiritually speaking, when you gave your heart to Christ and you got born again, you were born again out of that realm where God lives and functions, not of this natural realm. That's why uh, our relationship with God is not a religious experience. It's not natural at all. It is a very, very real spiritual thing. And so the door has been opened in your being born again for you to now have a relationship with the Father, with the, the Heavenly Father, who is Spirit, through the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, what, and I'm saying all that to say this point right here, okay? And, and if you don't get anything else, I, I, I say to you tonight, get this right here, okay? 
the power of God has superiority over any of the natural laws that are in operation in the earth. Let me say that again. The power of God has superiority over any of the natural laws that are in operation in the earth. One more time, the power of God has superiority over any of the natural laws that are in operation on the earth. Now, let me explain to you something, a principle, so that you can understand. Man has learned how to supersede certain spirit or natural laws, excuse me, by using other natural laws. Um, let me give you an example. If you've ever been on an airplane and went flying, okay? Well, there is a natural law in force in the earth called the law of gravity. The law of gravity says that whatever goes up must come down. You know, if you uh, are, were, if I was to drop a, a, a pen or a Bible, it's going to go straight down to the floor. That is the law of gravity. But what man has done through, I believe, God-given inspired uh, invention has learned how to create something that uses other natural laws to supersede the law of gravity. So, and it's called the law of lift. And so by, you know, and not to get too technical, but by the way air flows over the wings of an airplane and you have the law of thrust providing power, uh, those two laws working together can override the law of gravity. Now, if both of those laws ever quit working, the law of gravity is going to take over and, and you're going to come back down. Okay. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that God's power doesn't have to use any other natural laws to overcome natural law. It is His power is spiritual and of him and can override natural law. And here's the reason being is because the creator is always greater than the creation. Okay. So the creation is always subject to the creator. So your natural physical body is subject to the power of God. Any physical law in the in operation in the earth is subject to the power of God. In other words, when the power of God kicks in and says something is going to happen, there is no natural law that can stop it from happening. All right? Now, it's those things that I've said up to this point, it's very important to understand those things in order to understand the miracle working power of God. All right. Now, I intend to give you this definition later on in the lesson tonight, but let me get, go ahead and just give you a definition of what a miracle is. Okay. And a miracle in the sense of God's involvement. And I know, you know, people will, will experience certain things and, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm just something that may be coincidental and it gets labeled a miracle. All right. It's not really a miracle. Let me tell you what a miracle is. All right. A miracle is a divine intervention in the ordinary course of nature. A miracle is a divine intervention in the ordinary course 
of nature. One more time, a miracle is a divine intervention in the ordinary course of nature. So nature says it has to be this way. God's miracle working power is a divine intervention in that and says, nope, it's going to go this way. All right. And you'll see that in the miracles of Jesus. So have you found John chapter two? Meet me there. If you haven't John chapter two, and I want to read verses one through 10. And we're going to talk about the very first miracle in Jesus ministry and explain some things about this. So in John chapter two, verse one, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So let me lay some groundwork. Jesus has already established his ministry with his disciples. The ministry is young. I mean, it hasn't done a whole lot yet, but he's already got his disciples, and, and they were invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, which was a little village in the northern part of uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it says, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they, the, the wedding party, ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, let me, <clears throat> in today's society and culture, that's not a big deal. Okay. Um, in this day, it was a huge deal because you have to understand something. They didn't have soft drinks. They didn't have uh, ginger ale. They didn't have all the options that we have in beverages. Okay. So in this day, it was either water, wine, or some type of dairy product, milk. Okay. So you didn't have a wide variety. So here you have this formal event and I mean, you can imagine everybody in town is there. I mean, if Jesus and his 12 were there, that's 13 people plus his mother, 14. You can imagine this was a big to do. Now, we don't know what the relationship was to Jesus and why they were invited, but they were. And so for, for the wedding party, and especially if the parents were responsible for this wedding for them to run out of wine would be equivalent to you getting married, inviting everybody to your reception, and you've got one piece of chicken and a couple of vegetables, and they're expecting everybody to be able to eat off of that. It's just a huge no-no, a huge social faux pas, all right? And so <clears throat> verse four, Jesus, uh, well, verse three, and they ran out of wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So there's six pots there. And let's just say for the sake of our study, 30 gallons each. So 180 gallons potential. And Jesus said to them, talking about the, the people there, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So we have 180 gallons of water. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. 
And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. And this beginning, notice verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, based on this verse right here, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. Now, how then did his mother, if you go back to what his, he and his mother's interaction, so Jesus, Mary comes to him and says they have no wine, and Jesus' response was, in verse 4, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, what this tells us is, even though Jesus had never worked a miracle up to this point, we do know that in the scripture, it says that as Jesus grew up, he grew in the wisdom and stature of the Lord and, and grew in favor with God and with man. So what this tells us is that Jesus, throughout his lifetime, he's 30 years old now, has operated in a high level of wisdom uh, based on, on God's helping him, giving him godly wisdom. And so what this means is Jesus was an excellent problem solver. And so Mary came to him because apparently Jesus had a history of being able to solve problems because of the supernatural wisdom of God. But Jesus knew that more was required here than just solving a problem. There was going to have to be supernat something supernatural that takes place. Now, as I mentioned to you, water pots that were there were uh, a minimum of 30 gallons each. So we're talking 150 gallons to 180 gallons. And so he told them to go and fill them up. Now, I know how heavy a, a bucket of water is. I can't imagine how heavy, uh, you know, 30 gallons is in a container. I, I mean, if, just imagine two thirds of a 50 gallon drum. All right. That's what you're talking about in volume. So the servants, the people had to go and fill them up. So you can imagine this took a lot of work and it took a lot of time for them to be able to get it done. Now, natural thinking says, well, would it not have been easier to turn the water into wine because it's a liquid, just like, so water is a liquid and wine is a liquid. So that's what our natural thinking says, but the, that's not it at all. Jesus could have turned air into wine as easily as he could have turned the water into wine. I mean, if the power of God's going to show up, as we've already read, there's nothing too hard for God. So if, if he needed air to turn to wine, then so be it. But he instructed for the people to fill the water pots full of water and then the water became wine. Now, why did he do this? And this is very important, and it serves us well in this introduction because what I'm getting ready to tell you is, is a huge key 
into not only seeing the miraculous power of God, but receiving from the miraculous power of God, and that is this. Jesus had the people get involved in this miraculous process, okay, because they he wanted them involved in seeing and receiving the power of God to show up to change the situation. You know, he could have just waved his hand over the pots, and all of a sudden there was wine there. But, you know, he had them go and fill the pots because he wanted people involved in the miraculous process. And the same thing is true today. If you want to see or if you want to receive a miracle from the Lord, there's going to be God's part and there's going to be your part. You are going to have a part to play in the receiving from the miracle working power of God. God could do everything that he ever wanted to do without us, but he chose to have us involved in the process. All right? So this is why there's an element that's required in the miraculous, and it's called F-A-I-T-H, faith. Okay? So the miraculous power of God is going to require human involvement, and it's going to require faith. Now, notice Mary's response when he said, uh, woman, you know, what, what does your concern have to do with it? me? My hour has not yet come. I think this, <laughs> you know, I've seen this throughout Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. You know, Jesus, people would often say something to Jesus, and, you know, he wouldn't respond. He'd just walk away. I believe he learned that from his mother because notice his mother didn't say anything else to him. She said this, he made his reply, and then his mother just turns and says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Okay, because in other words, she had seen him solve problems before, so she knew it could be done, so she just turned and walked away. She, you know, there was nothing else to, to be said in that conversation, okay? Now, again, understand this. In the working of miracles or receiving from the miracle-working power of God, there will always be God's part, human part, and faith. God's part, human part, and faith. Now, don't mistake the human part and faith to equal uh, earning the miraculous power of God, okay? Because let's face it, y'all, we can never do anything to deserve or earn God's involvement in our lives. The only reason that he performs miracles in our lives is because he loves us, he cares about us, and we dare to believe that he will do it, all right? So God wants to work with us in his plan in the earth, but again, he's going to have to have faith and action in order for that to happen, okay? So faith is the invitation that we give to God for him to move in our situation the way that he wants to. Now go over to verse 11 there in John 2, and I want you to see something. It says this beginning of signs, excuse me, Peter Brady was there. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifesting 
manifested his glory. And notice this last phrase, and his disciples believed in him. Now it says that his disciples believed on him because of this miracle. Now, why did they believe on him because of the miracle? Because they were involved in the miracle. In other words, Jesus didn't just do this. They had a hand in this miracle. I personally believe, although the scripture doesn't spell it out, I believe the disciples participated and helped in filling the water pots. And so they were able to uh, be able to participate in this miracle. Now, go over with me to Matthew 18. Again, we're just taught, laying some groundwork about the miraculous power of God. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. Well, let's just read verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's talk about why did Jesus say this about children and their role or, or just he's using it as an example of the kingdom of God and how it operates. Children, little children specifically, intrinsically trust. It's built into a child that, that their parents or a caregiver is going to take care of them. This is the way, okay, so think about it. Um, when was the last time, you know, if you, if you have had a little child, you know, and I'm talking about two, three, four years old, that that little child paced the floor in the middle of the night trying to figure out, uh, you know, how, how are we going to pay the bills in the house? Okay, that's beyond their pay grade. What children are built to do, and I believe this is what the Lord builds in them, is a confidence to know that they will be taken care of. In other words, that whoever is, is responsible for me will take care of me. And the reason Jesus said this, he said, um, you know, unless you become like this, you'll, not, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, where we have to get in our faith in God is the same as a little child. I'm not necessarily talking about mentally. I'm talking about just the way a child will believe. Okay. I know some little children, man, you make a promise to that little child and I'll be doggone if they'll ever forget that. Okay. I have some little cousins, uh, that I went to visit in, uh, in April of 20, no, April of 22, May, May of 22. And, uh, you know, they're staggered. There's five of them and, uh, they have a trampoline in the back of their house. They live in Texas and they have a trampoline in the back of their house. Well, the middle daughter, um, just, 
she's red haired, freckled. I mean, just typical little country girl. She, um, I mean, I hadn't been there two or three hours and she's already after me to go jump on the trampoline with her. Okay. Now I'm a, you know, I'm not 20. All right. So she's after me. So I, I, I made the mistake. Okay. And it, I'm not, it's not a huge mistake. I mean, that's not the right word, but, but I said, okay, Ashlyn, here's what I will do. I promise you before I leave to go home. Now I was going to be there a week before I leave to go home. I promise you, I will jump on the trampoline, jump with you on the trampoline. Well, secretly I was hoping she would forget that. Well, guess what? The day I'm supposed to leave. I mean, I am packing my stuff to get ready to go catch a flight to come back home. And here I am, I've already showered and everything. And she comes up to me and she says, are you going to jump with me on the trampoline? She hadn't mentioned it all week, but she remembered that that promise I made to her. And so, you know, I, I, I am glad there's not video of it, but yes, I did go out and jump on the trampoline with her, okay, before I went to the airport. Now, what's my point in this? When I made that promise to her, there was no doubt in her mind that I was going to do what I said, or I could do what I said I was going to do. Now, she had to remind me, but the fact of the matter is um, she believed the promise. And so Jesus is telling us that that we need to have the faith of a little child in order to be able to tap into the way the kingdom of God operates. In other words, we just got to believe that God will do what he said he would do. He will perform what his word says he will perform and, and just believe it because he said that he would do it. Okay. And that's the way that we have to be. That's why faith is such a big deal to God, because he wants us involved. He wants us partnering with him so that the power of God can be released into our lives. The way that God will not work is this, where you just put everything on him, the responsibility all on him, and you don't do anything, you know? It, it does not work that way. And so faith is required. Having the faith of a little child is required for us to be able to tap into the power of God in that way. And, we're, and a lot of times, if not most of the time, when you're seeing the miraculous, uh, the miracles of Jesus in the gospels, you will see that childlike characteristic in the people's faith that shows up. All right. And so we'll be on the lookout for that. Now, um, go over with me to the eighth chapter of Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew, the eighth chapter. Now I, I already gave you the definition of a miracle. A miracle is a divine intervention in the ordinary course of nature. So let's look at what is probably one of the greatest hindrances to people being able to receive a miracle or be able to receive from the miracle working power of God. In Matthew's Matthew 8, chapter or chapter 8, verse 1. So it says here, 
that when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, now let pay attention to his, the way he articulates this. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I want you to just pay attention to the details. Notice this leper did not say, Lord, if you are able, you can make me clean. Notice the phraseology he used. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here's, here's the number one thing that trips people up. People do not question Jesus' ability to perform miracles, they question whether he is willing or not. In other words, nobody, I, I, I'm quite sure that if I was to go over to the mall tonight and do a survey and ask people, do you believe God is able to do the miraculous? I, I'd say the largest portion, if not everybody would say, yes, here's the rub. Do you believe he would do a miracle for you? Do you believe he is willing to do a miracle for you? Can I say it to you in plain English? Do you believe that God wants to work a miracle in your life? Well, I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know. You know, nobody fully understands the will of God. Nobody really can wrap their heart or brain around the will of God. And that absolutely is not the truth. And that's the way this leper was approaching Jesus. There was no question in his mind as to whether Jesus had the ability to cleanse the leprosy. The problem or the question was, Lord, will you? And I'm telling you right now, in your receiving from God, that is going to be the number one area that is going to trip you up, is believing, does God want to do this for me? Because a lot of people believe deep down, and for a number of reasons, but they believe deep down, really, God doesn't want to do that for me. Well, you know, and for reasons like, well, you know, I know what I did before I got saved. And, and you know, that just, I, I might I might have disqualified, disqualified myself, or, or God might be upset with me about something, or God might be mad at me, or you know, just a number of reasons, but I want you to understand and pay attention to Jesus' response. Again, verse two, behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse three, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. So what did Jesus say? He said he put out his hand, which first of all, think about that. It was a no-no to touch a leper because you could get leprosy yourself. Notice Jesus wasn't concerned about that. And so to not only verbalize his will, he acted out his will, and he reached out and touched the man, and here's what he said, I want to be healed. I want you healed. I want you cleansed. In other words, he clearly made known what his will is. Now, 
write this down, please, this statement. Okay, very important. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Your ability to receive a miracle is always going to be predicated by the question, do I believe God wants to do this for me? And that's where you have to establish <coughs> what the will of God is. That's why we go to his word. That's why we look to the word, because the word very clearly spells out what the will of God is, okay? So you're going to have to establish, as long as there's a question mark in your heart about the will of God, the power of God will never be able to go beyond that question mark. You know, think about this. Let's say, you know, you get somebody and you're trying to minister the gospel to them. I mean, just the simple gospel about being born again, giving your heart to Christ. And uh, your conversation might go something like, well, you know, I, I've just been such a bad person, you know, and I've really done some evil things, and I'm just not sure God wants somebody like me. And, and you know, that's a very possible way that that conversation could go. And so for that person to be able to receive even the simple gospel of the new birth and being born again, they have to be convinced of the fact God loves me. He died for me on the cross and he wants me to be saved. He wants me as his own. He wants me in his family. That's where they must be convinced of that in other words, it's in that convincing that faith arises to be able to receive the new birth. Well, the same thing is true for, for everything that we receive from God. It all is going to start with, do I believe it's God's will for me? Now, the reason that I say this is because as we study this over the next coming weeks, we're going to see time and time again, where Jesus functioned just like he did with this leper in, in, in establishing and making known what the will of God is so that people could have faith to receive. Jesus will always move in the life of a person to bring them to faith. Now, why is that? Because faith is what gives him permission to be able to move in their life. Faith is the open door that says, God, come in, do what your power has made available and can do in my life. Okay. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse three, that we've all been given, everybody that's born again has been given the measure of faith. In other words, we all start at the same level, the same place. Now, why does God do it that way? Because he knows that's required in order for him to be able to move in your life. 
Now, whether you do anything with that faith, that's up to you. But the fact of the matter is, see, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. He, he doesn't regard one person over another. And so he doesn't, he doesn't do more for me because I preach and minister the word of God than he will do for you. Why is that? Because it's not based on what I do. It's based on what I believe and I believe him for. Okay. So I'm saying all of that to say for you to tap into the power of God, faith must be present. And there will always be some type of corresponding action to go with that faith. And we'll talk more about that as we get into this. Now, with the few minutes that I have remaining, I want to talk about what, who will God do a miracle for? Or let me say the correct English, for whom will Jesus perform a miracle? Okay. And why? Okay. So for whom will Jesus perform a miracle? Now, I'm going to, for the sake of time, just give you some references. And so you can write some scriptures down, go back and read these scriptures, because we just don't have time to go through every story in every detail. But the first person that we see Jesus perform a miracle in their life was someone who did not even know him. Okay. So Jesus will move in the life of someone who doesn't even know him, but will believe in him. Did you know sinners will believe in Jesus? A lot of times faster than, than religious people will. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Matthew 15, 21 and tw through 28. It says a Canaanite woman came to Jesus and said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Okay, now let's pay attention to the details. This woman is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And yet she hears about the miraculous power of God working through the Lord. And so she comes and she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. And you know the story, verse 23, he answered her not a word. And Finally, his disciples got annoyed with her and said, hey, why don't you tell her to go away? And so he answered and he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came and responded and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now he is going back to what I said to you. Jesus will always bring people to a place of faith. He was not trying to insult her. He's trying to identify where her faith is and let her see where her faith is. So he says, um, it's not good to take the children's bread, throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. So here's this woman who's a Gentile, has no access by a covenant or by relationship through the, through the Jewish people to Jesus whatsoever, but because she would believe and was persistent in her faith, Jesus responded to her and still ministered to her and delivered her daughter. 
Number two, Jesus heals those who are outcasts from society, people that aren't accepted by the norm. Um, in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, this is the story of the 10 lepers. And uh, in verse 12 of Luke 17, it said they were, uh, he, the, he and the disciples were in a certain village and there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. Now, a lot of this is literal, but some of it could be uh, symbolic as well. Notice these, these, these lepers, because of their disease, they were cast out of society. They were not allowed to even mingle with regular people. They lost their jobs. They lost their family. They lost everything they own and were forced to go and live on these leper colonies with other lepers. And so here you have 10 of them together. And uh, they cry out, long story short, they cry out, they ask the Lord for help. He heals all of them. And this is the story where they all leave to go back. And the one came back and showed his appreciation and thanksgiving to the Lord. But my point is this, Jesus will minister to people who are cast out from society, who are not part of the mainstream. He'll go and he'll reach those people that seemingly are unreachable. Number three, Jesus heals those who are left behind because of their condition. Jesus heals those who are left behind because of their condition. Now, um, let me give you the reference, and then you can read it on your own time. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the story of the paralyzed man. And Jesus was in someone's home preaching and teaching. And you remember the paralyzed man had five friends. Now think about this. This paralyzed man had to depend on somebody to take him wherever he went. He couldn't go anywhere without the help of his friends or family. And so, you know, this person, this, this man had been left behind because of this disease. He was totally incapacitated, but his five friends believed and of course he believed because you got to have faith to allow people to haul you up on the roof to let you down through the ceiling. Okay. But that's what happened. You remember Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden the ceiling starts breaking up and here's this guy lowered down in the middle of the room and he gets healed. Jesus tells him, arise, take up your bed and walk and he gets healed. So here's somebody that is because of their condition left behind and is totally dependent on other people Yet Jesus ministered to them, or ministered to him, and healed him. Number four, Jesus healed someone who was limited because of disease. Not totally incapacitated, but, but limited. There was a man in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, who had a withered hand. And uh, so Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and people are gathered there in the synagogue, and here's this man standing over to the side, and his hand all drawn up, and 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 he's handicapped. Now he's not totally, you know, paralyzed or anything like that. But but he's limited. Well, Jesus called him out in front of the crowd and told him. He said, "Reach here and and uh, let me see exactly how he said it." He said to him, uh, "He said to the man, stretch out your hand." And so the man 
stretched out his hand, his hand was healed and, 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 you know, God got the glory. But here's my point is this man, although he wasn't totally incapacitated, he was limited. God will do the miraculous for people who are limited. In other words, you know, we, we, we believe God will move on the, the real bad cases, but how about the one that's just limited? No, God will move for anybody who will dare believe him. In uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we see where Jesus showed up and ministered to the, the man at Gadarene. This is the man that was mentally ill uh, and, uh, you know, was uh, demon-possessed and mentally ill and was rejected by society because of his condition. Well, Jesus healed this man. Now, let me say something to you. You can be sick in your mind just like you can be sick in your body. But Jesus wants you well in your mind, in your soul, just like he does in your physical body. And this is demonstrated here in this particular situation where Jesus set the man free. Uh, in number six, Jesus heals those conditions that are long standing. You remember the woman who was in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, there was a woman who was bowed over for 18 years, not 18 days, not 18 weeks, 18 years. This woman had not been able to stand up straight. And you know, you know, just like any of us, she, she just realized, okay, that was the way life was going to be. And she adapted to it. But here Jesus shows up and tells her, woman, you are loose from your infirmity. She, she stands up and she's healed in that situation. You know, I'm also reminded, you remember the man that was laid at the pool of Bethesda, 38 years he had the condition where he was laid on that cot, and Jesus showed up and healed him. And so just the length of your condition does not slow down the power of God is what I want us to see. It doesn't hinder God's power at all. Now, you know, one thing that bothers me, and I'm going to say this quickly, okay, because I'm, I'm out of time, but, you know, I hear people say things like, well, you know, Jesus will meet your needs, but he won't necessarily meet your wants or your desires. And uh, no, he won't meet your desires if you have a greedy motiva motivation. But I will say this. Jesus will show up and perform a miracle in your life so your life can be normal. I'm going to say that again. Jesus desires to heal people and perform miracles in their lives so that they can have a sense of normalcy in their life. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, this is the story of Jairus's daughter. And of course, interjected in there is the woman with the issue of blood who was healed. But I want to want to just highlight one little thing uh, about this in, in Jairus's daughter. Let me give you the background real quick. Jairus's daughter, she's 12 years old. She got sick. She ended up dying while Jesus is having a conversation with Jairus. Remember, the servant came and said, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. Jesus, that didn't phase Jesus at all. He didn't say, oh, well, it's too late. You know, I'll see you later. Y'all have a nice funeral. 
No, that didn't phase Jesus at all. When the father, when Jairus came to him in faith, that's all Jesus needed. And Jesus responded and was going to the house. And so when he got to the house, he ministered to the little girl, raised her up. Now she was dead. He raised her up from the dead. Now, in Mark chapter five, don't turn there, but uh, in verse 42, it says, immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them, now pay attention to the details. He commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. All right, now this is very, very important. Notice what happened. Jesus raised this girl from the dead and her father is a huge leader in the community. He's already well known in the community. He's a leader of the synagogue. Okay. So Jesus raises his daughter from the dead, but notice what the instructions were. Don't tell anybody what has happened today and then give her something to eat. Well, you know, I don't know if you've been around any middle school kids, but middle school kids like to eat. And so the first thing that Jesus wanted to do when she was raised up was make sure she got something to eat. But the main thing that I wanted you to see was notice he said, don't tell anybody. Why did he do that? Why was Jesus so specific in giving that instruction? Well, the reason being was Jesus out of his love and his grace and his mercy did not want this little 12 year old girl to become the freak of that village, the freak of that community. Can you imagine if it was widely publicized what had happened? She couldn't walk down the street without there being whispers about here. That's the little girl, you know, that, and, and she couldn't go to school and live a normal life. Everything about her life would be turned upside down because of, of, of people not being able to fully grasp and understand what the Lord had done in her life. But Jesus loved her so much that he wanted her to be able to live a normal life as a teenager and to be able to grow up in her relationship with her family and, her, and the Lord and so forth, that he gave those instructions because he did not want her to live or have to live an abnormal life. So God will do a miracle in someone's life so that they can have some form of normalcy in their life. You know, and that kind of flies in the face of what religion teaches. But the fact of the matter is God loves people and he wants to undo, the scripture says, the works of the devil. He wants to correct what the devil has done and what the devil has tried to steal from people. He wants that restored. He wants that, uh, that healing to take place, that restoration to take place so that people's lives cannot be upended by what the devil has brought into their lives. All right. Now here's the good news. Okay. Hebrews 13, eight. Now, and this is just the beginning. This is lesson number one, but Hebrews 13, eight says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same miracle working Jesus that we're going to study about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 
is still the same miracle-working Jesus that is alive today. The same God, Lord God Jehovah, that we see ministering in the Old Testament and performing miracles in the Old Testament is still our Heavenly Father in the New Testament. And so the whole point of all of this study is so that our faith in the miracle-working power of God can go to a whole nother level and we can receive from him what he desires to do in our lives. Amen. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.